Jewel already gave the nod that Brooke and I uh, were preaching this morning, but if we haven't had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Michael Witterman, and this is my wife, Brooke, and we are a part of the leadership here at Crestmont, and we are super excited to just be able to share with you this morning a little bit about what God has been sharing with us and teaching us um, in many ways through each of you here and through all of you. And so before we get going, it seems like there's been a bit of a pattern when somebody that speaks isn't like the regular part of the preaching rotation. And uh, they like to puff up Joel a little bit. And uh, maybe some of the other folks on staff, I know Devonte even got real emotional about how great Joel was one Sunday. And I believed it, Devonte. I believed everything you said. <clears throat> but uh, for Brooke and I, it is interesting for us to sit here this morning and think about who we are in relationship to so many of you. Um, even as I was thinking about this, um, Joel, some of you, maybe many of you know, was actually a student in the youth group when Brooke and I were giving leadership to it. And uh, now he's the lead pastor here at the church, and we serve together. And so it's so cool to see the way that God has um, just raised him up and is leading Crestmont. Um, yeah, and just the, the unique way that God has done that is so special to us. But then, too, for the other members of the staff, um, I think about Steve and uh, his wife, Julie, actually were members of a small discipleship group that Brooke and I led when we were in college. And uh, two very different groups. They were in college. We were a young married couple. And uh, two very different groups. I met with the guys. Brooke met with the girls. And they laughed a lot more than we did. Um, I don't know if you remember, Steve. It was like every week we could just hear them upstairs laughing for most of the time that they were there. Um, but so cool to see the way that God has brought Steve into the life of Crestmont and now serving as one of our pastors as well. And we just see this, this new thing happening where leaders are being raised up from within the body. And we consider it such a privilege to serve alongside of so many of you. And so thanks so much for the opportunity to, to be a part of what's happening here. For Brooke and I, um, we love this church. Um, this morning we were praying together. And I think it was Steve that um, used the word tribe in relationship to Crestmont, um, the tribe of Crestmont. And I thought, we are a peculiar tribe. Um, but man, we're so excited about what God is doing here. I've been going to Crestmont since, I've been a part of this church since I was in high school uh, for Brooke when she was in college. And to see the way that God is moving amongst our people today, it's just incredibly exciting. And we're so glad to be a part of this move of the spirit that's happening here. Um, sometimes for Brooke and I, even when we're with other folks, we were recently um, in Akron, Ohio for like a night of worship concert, and uh, I remember as we were sitting there that night and we got into worship, I, I felt like we were at home. Um, it felt like we were at Crestmont, and I remember commenting to Brooke and Julia Santilli was with us, and I remember saying to Brooke, I'm like, this feels like home. Um, it's like these people speak our language, and we just worshiped, and we prayed together, and we prayed for each other in that environment, and even the teaching just sounded like something that would happen here, and it was just a reminder to me that what God is doing, this move of the Spirit, isn't just for Crestmont, but it's happening around the world, and God has called us, invited us to be a part of it, and I so want to be a part of what God is doing in this move of the Spirit. And so this morning, we just want to continue um, in sharing who God is and what he's doing. And as a part of that, we're looking at the first Sunday in Advent, and we're going to take a look at a passage in uh, the book of Genesis chapter 3. So if you want to find that in whichever way you like to do that, on paper or on your device. Um, but Advent is, um, just as Joel, I think, said, this season of expectant waiting um, I think it's, it's a rough translation of a, a Latin word that means coming. 
And uh, it's a season of preparation, waiting for the celebration of Jesus um, entering the world. And it's our desire for, for us here at Crestmont, um, our little tribe, that this Advent season would make some connections to this overarching story that we see in the Bible. Um, this theme of Jesus breaking into the world actually happens thousands of years before he comes. And it's pointed to in the Old Testament. And I think it's really important to be reminded this morning that Jesus, Jesus was always God's perfect plan for redeeming the world. Jesus was always plan A. Um, Jesus was always God's first option for saving and redeeming his people, even thousands of years before he was born. Um, Jesus is the center of this huge story that we tell week in and week out. And we're also privileged to be a part of that ongoing story. So I mentioned our passage this morning is Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses 119, uh, 1 through 19. Um, and while all of the Bible is undeniably important, right? We're not going to take anything out of the Bible. We want to be careful about that. Um, this passage is a bit unique in the fact that it sets the stage for everything that's to come. Um, when I think about some of the, the parts of this passage, it reminds me of the importance of some of those basic passages that we see in the New Testament, like John 3.16 that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that no one would perish, but that we'd all have eternal life. And in this passage, we find the promise of that. Um, we find this little cue to what is to happen for the redemption of the whole world. And so if you have that passage, we have it on the screen. I invite you to stand, as we're in the habit of doing here, in honor of God's word as we read this passage together. <clears throat> now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from that tree that is in the middle of the garden. and You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. 
With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since, you, since from it you were taken. For you, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Lord, we just ask and pray that as we begin to investigate your word together, that you would bless it. Uh, Lord, that you would call it good. Lord, we pray that as we work through these things that you've taught us, that these words would find places in people's hearts and that we would leave here a changed people, unified by your love for us and because of the work of your spirit. Amen. You can be seated. So as we um, dig into this passage, we're going to see that the beginning of um, this passage actually refers to what Joel mentioned earlier, is that this is what created the longing um, and we put it in context, as you can you turn to, this is chapter 3 of Genesis. Um, and if you know, in chapters 1 and 2, that was where um, we had the story of creation. And God created everything in the world, and he said it was good. And then he created um, humans, and he said it was very good. And everything was perfect up until this time and where we enter into this passage. Um, and this passage shows us where sin enters into the world. Um, so, and just as a, a caveat, Michael kind of mentioned this, but um, one of the things we want you guys to be able to see in this, and Michael's going to kind of tie it together in a little bit, but the Bible is a single story. I think oftentimes we see it as these disjointed stories throughout it, but really it's one story that's telling us what's wrong with the human race, what God is going to do about it, and how history is going to end. It gives us one single story the, all, the whole way through, and I think that helps us to be able to kind of have that tucked into our heads. Um, so the question that we're gonna begin with is, what is sin? Um, and I have here on the screen, you can see, that sin is any deliberate action, attitude, or thought that goes against God. Um, oftentimes, I think when we think of sin, um, we think of kind of like the obvious things like murder, adultery, theft, um, those kinds of things. Those are true when we think of sin, but there's also the much more subtle um, sins like pride, envy, even worry if we let it take us over. Um, the Bible is very clear about sin. And I feel like often in our world today, um, our world, world is really good at downplaying sin. Um, we don't want to call sin, sin. Um, and oftentimes, we don't even want to talk about sin. Um, we like to especially play what um, I like to call the comparison game, where we look at what we do, but then I look at what somebody else does, and I think, well, I'm not as bad as that sin. And so that justifies it in my mind, and then I take, think that I'm okay. Um, and I think that's really what we do a lot of um, in, the, in the world today. But here's what the Bible has to say about sin. Um, and we have four passages um, if we can turn to that. So the first one I have here is Psalm 51.5. It says, I was sinful at birth, filled with sin from the time my mother conceived me. Um, the next one is Psalm 14.1 through 3, paraphrased a little bit. Um, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who do does good, not even one. 
Um, the next one is Romans 3.23 that says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, and then in Jeremiah 17.9, we see where it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. So I think the Bible is pretty clear of this state um, that we're in. So whether we want to deny it or not, um, if we look inside, we know this is to be true. Um, it's really important that we understand that we all have a real problem with sin. And um, I was looking at this, and I had come across um, the, somebody that was talking about the fact that they broke sin down into two categories, and I felt like this was helpful um, to kind of look at. And so the two categories that I have here for sin are sins of impulse and sins of the heart. So as we look at this, sins of impulse are often what come to mind, as I mentioned a little bit earlier when we think about sin. Um, the process with impulse looks something like this when we are you know, kind of in these sins of impulse. I see something, I want it, and I take it. So that's you know, kind of what this looks like, and it often leads us to adultery, murder, theft, addictions, anger, rage. Um, any of these things. And then the second category, when we look at the sins of the heart, these are the sins that are hard to see on the outside. And we do a really good job of keeping you know, a lot of our sins on the inside. They're deep inside our hearts. These are the things like selfishness, jealousy, envy, bitterness, hypocrisy. Um, these are the things that, if left untouched, grow inside our hearts. Um, and I think, you know, I think oftentimes we do a really good job of even deceiving ourselves um, in the fact that these things are there. Jesus spent his entire ministry really dealing with these two kinds of sins. The impulse sinners, you know, kind of the examples of that would be when he dealt with the prostitutes or the dishonest tax collectors or, you know, down the line of some of those people. But on the other side, much of his ministry was spent um, with the spiritual or the heart sinners. And what that looked like was the group of religious leaders of the day that were often called the Pharisees or the teachers of the law. And although outwardly the Pharisees looked like they had their act together, Jesus referred to them in Matthew. He called them whitewashed tombs. He said they were beautiful on the outside, but filled with dead man's bones was what they looked like. So in other words, the Pharisees, I love this line, the Pharisees were concerned about looking holy rather than being holy. Um, their pride showed up in their legalistic attitude that they had scorned the people they felt were beneath them in their religious hierarchy. They felt like they were up here and people were much below them. Um, not only did they not love others, but Jesus made it clear that they did not love God. Um, the more I grow in my walk with the Lord, the more I'm able to see my sin for what it is. Um, I was thinking of this, I was thinking of an example um, that stuck with me for years, and this was actually something I heard way back in college, which I hate to admit was really a long time ago now. Um, but it was, a, it was an example that somebody gave, and they said if your hand was covered in mud and um, you were in a dark room, like a, you know, a pretty dim lit room, it really wouldn't look that bad. But if I got that hand and I went closer to a light, all of a sudden, I would be able to see what that looked like and what that dirt looked like. And it's the same way when we look at sin. The closer I get in my walk with the Lord, the more I see my sin and the more I see my depravity. And you may be thinking, this would be really defeating or you know, a really negative thing to experience. Um, but I can tell you it's not. Um, I was thinking of the passage of this in Romans 2.4. It says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. 
Um, and I found that as I allow the Lord to surface these things that are all over my heart and all these, you know, especially these subtle sins that are deep inside, um, it gives me the chance to confess my sin and get back in right relationship with God again. Um, and I love that. So in this passage with Adam and Eve, the first in the first sin, we begin to see that every single relationship has been affected by sin. So we've come to the place where we agree that sin's an issue, that we need to deal with it. And here we saw Adam and Eve, the first sin, and we're going to look at what happened to their relationships. So we're going to look at this in three ways. Um, the first thing that sin does is it destroys our relationship with God. Um, and in verse 8, it says... Um, it talks about the fact that man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. Um, and the one thing that's kind of interesting in this passage, the Hebrew word for walking in this passage literally means friendship and relationship is what it's interpreted to mean. So that means that God was wanting a relationship with Adam and Eve. Don't, why don't we want relationship with him? Um, it's because oftentimes we want power, we want control, and we want to be in charge. I'll have a relationship with you as long as you meet my needs and as long as it doesn't get in the way of my happiness and my fulfillment. It's all about us. We want relationships as long as they build us up and they make us feel good. We like consumer relationships. Um, we like the idea of what can you do for me is our mindset. We even sometimes see this in, in the church. Um, you know, we think about church membership, you know, which I think is kind of a bad word sometimes. You know, and the fact that it's like, okay, it's like not like a country club. Like, what can you do for me? If I join, how can you serve me? Um, and we just, we really have this consumer mentality in so many different places. But the Bible talks about relationship in such a different way. It uses a term called covenant. Um, and this is woven all through the one story that we've talked about in the Bible from beginning to end. Um, covenant relationship is the way that God relates to us. In covenant relationships, we are committed to serve somebody whether or not you're getting anything out of it. Covenant goes against our human nature of wanting to keep control and having power. And I love this line from Tim Keller. It says, there's no way for a finite or the finite being to walk with an infinite being without losing control, so we won't have it. Let me say that one more time. There's no way for a finite being to walk with an infinite being without losing control, and so we won't have it. So the first relationship that broke when sin entered the world was our relationship with God. The second relationship that broke was sin destroys our relationship with ourselves. And we can see this in Adam's response. And in Genesis 3.10, I have it on the screen for you guys. It says, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. When Adam says he's naked, it's because he felt guilty. He felt a sense of shame. He now feels that he needs to prove himself and he needs to cover up is what we're seeing. We do this all the time. We think that we need to keep people from seeing who we really are because they're going to reject us. When our relationship with God is broken, our relationship with ourselves is broken as well. None of us really want to admit what's wrong with us. We don't want to believe that we're under, utterly dependent on God. We think that we only need God occasionally or not at all. Our, in our heart of hearts, we know that we're utterly dependent on God, um, and we are an identity mess. And if we can come to grips with that and just understand that that's who we are, 
we can come to a conclusion or a, um, be able to address that problem, but oftentimes we just stay in this place of not being able to recognize it for what it is. We often are looking for our affirmation from all the wrong places. Um, I don't know about you guys, I mean, I have spent a lot of my life looking for affirmation in what people think of me. You know, I've thought, if they like me, then I'm okay. You know, or if they don't like me, something's wrong with me. Um, I've spent a lot of my life getting my affirmation from what I do, whether it's raising my children or whether it's my job and my work and my clients and all of these places. I've even tried to prove myself to God. You know, I've thought I've had to earn God's love. And this is all part of this broken identity crisis. Um, when our identity is coming from ev anything other than how God sees us, we will be a mess. We need to understand how God loves us, and Michael's going to talk on this a little bit, um, but we need to understand that we are unconditionally loved, and I can't go away from this point without just saying this a little bit. Have you come to the place where you believe in your hearts that there is truly nothing you can do to make God love you more or less? Do you really believe that? It's taken me a really long time. I was a Christian for a really, really long time before I ever even came to scratch the surface of believing that this was true. Do I believe in the core of my being that I'm God's favorite? I love that line. Think about that. I'm his favorite. Say that to yourself. That's a hard thing to even say. You know, we oftentimes can't even say that because we really don't believe it. Do you believe with all your heart that on your worst day, God loves you as much as he ever has? That's an amazing, amazing thought. When we don't believe this, we see that our identity has been affected. Our self-worth will shift like the sand on the seashore. Each day, it will be dependent on our performance and on what other imperfect people think of us. And it will never go well. So, and then the third way that sin destroys um, is our relationship with each other. Um, and I was thinking about this. Um, this happens even at the earliest of ages with small children. And a story came to mind of when Michael and I had our first baby. And we said, you know, it's hard to imagine. Crestmont is filled with kids now. But when Michael and I first got married, we were kind of the first of everyone to get married. And there were, no, there were no kids, like babies, like really around. So Grant was his first baby, and we were doing the youth group. He was this loved baby. I mean, we all loved He had like 10 sets of, grand, of parents, and I mean, he was just this loved child. And so um, Michael and I, we took him to the Robinson Mall, to the little play area at the Robinson Mall, and he was crawling around, and we're adoringly watching this one little boy. And, um, you know, we had our eyes on him, and he was right in front of us. And next thing you know, this boy who was probably like five, and the sign clearly says no running, but of course that doesn't apply in the, in the play area. And so this boy was running by, and Grant, who was just crawling around, was in his way. And he looked at him, and he said, stupid baby. And Michael and I looked at each other, and we're like, <gasps> like somebody called our baby stupid. <laughs> But I thought that, as you know, you think about the brokenness of relationships, like we see it even in young children, that they're a 10-month-old had a fracture in a relationship with a 5-year-old um, at the play area at Robinson. Um, but in this passage, in all more seriousness, in this passage, we do see the brokenness in relationship with each other. And I love this part of the passage. I don't love it. I said that yesterday. Michael said, don't say love, and now I said it. <laughs> um, I think it's funny, this part in the passage. All right, you pick. I, I'm not sure. 
All right, we'll just go with whatever then. <laughs> interesting. We'll say it. interesting. All right, we'll do that. All right, so in this part of the passage, in verse 12, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So right in the beginning here, we have Adam throwing Eve under the bus. <laughs> um, you know, here he's saying, she gave me the fruit to eat. But even onto that, he actually moves on to God. You know, and he says, the woman you put me here with. So he's, I mean, he's totally not wanting to take any of the blame. Um, he's wanting to shift that blame to somebody else. And aren't we all really good at blaming others and making excuses for our sin? Um, I was thinking, I actually got permission to share this example, but um, we recently have been having a little bit of an issue with Christian, who's our second son, um, because all of a sudden we started finding sandwiches, like, hidden around our house um, <laughs> that he, like, was, didn't want to eat, like, in his lunch. And so the first time I thought it, like, <laughs> don't give him any suggestions. <laughs> But the first time I thought, what is this? I'm like, this is so weird. And I just threw it away. Then I found another one, and I'm like, this is too weird, you know. So we kind of had addressed it. Then we found another one just the other day, and it was, like, down in this box in the basement. I'm like, how did this sandwich get down there? So it's like you're bringing it home. You're taking it down there. So, of course, we addressed this with Christian, and his first response is this. He just stared at me. I'm like... Are you kidding me? And then his second response was where he started to um, make excuses about how it really wasn't very good. <laughs> and that was why. Um, and so we just see this over, you know, all the time where our natural response to our sin is we want to pretend it didn't happen. We want to cover it up. We just want to act like, um, you know, act like it really wasn't there. Like if I could have just stopped, like if he could have just pretended to look through me, and just pretend it never happened, he would have been cool with that. So, We're sorry, Christian. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. <laughs> um, we can also see the break in relationship between Adam and Eve just after they sinned. And um, this is just where we read it, but it's talked about the fact that they realized they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings. Um, this is just after they sinned, and this is before they were even caught. They want to cover up their nakedness. Who were they covering up for? God wasn't even around. So here they are. They're hiding from each other. Um, they're covering up from each other. We cannot stand to have other people really know who we are, and we want to control what people think about us, and there's such a break in our relationship with each other. So as you can see, every one of our relationships has been affected by sin, but the good news is, is that that is not the end of the story. So I'm enjoying the fact right now that Brooke has been like the bearer of bad news to this point. And I actually, I actually get to bring in hope. Um, I get to introduce good news to the story because this is, after all, an Advent passage, right? This is a story about Jesus coming, and praise God, this isn't where it ends for us. Um, it didn't end with our sinfulness and our brokenness. Um, God didn't decide to do something different. Um, he decided to redeem us. He decided to enact a rescue plan to bring us back into right relationship with us. And that's where our hope is found. Um, it's not a hopeless story. And as I was thinking about this, and this is like a thought that's been running through my mind recently, um, the more that I read the Bible, the more that I begin to see it as this like absolutely mind-bending story. Um, the, the more I read it, 
the more I study it, the more I'm blown away by it. Um, I, I would say like at moments, it's like hair raising, heart stopping, rip roaring, heart stirring. And it took thousands of years to tell the story. Um, for those of you that watch the Hallmark Channel, you might appreciate this analogy. I had this thought that, that the Bible is like a Hallmark Channel Christmas movie on steroids. You know how it's going to end within the first 15 minutes, but it takes thousands of years to watch it. And I feel like that's, that's what God did in, in, in this passage, right? We're in Genesis chapter three. It's the beginning of the story, yet God gives us a picture of where it's going. I know what you're thinking. You're like, oh my goodness, she's actually not gonna marry the rich guy that's actually mean but she's gonna marry the poor guy that doesn't seem to have it all together, but they have something special. Um, there's this twist that happens, right? It looks really obvious. Um, but yeah, so soon after our fall, God introduces this amazing rescue plan. And this, this passage here is to me like the John 3:16 of the Old Testament. It says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Bible scholars refer to this as the proto-evangel um, or the first gospel. Uh, there are two characters that are central to this passage. There's the bone crusher, his name's Jesus, and then the ankle biter, uh, his name's Satan. And this is a foreshadowing or a foretelling of Jesus coming to rescue the earth from sin and death by coming as a man, dying on the cross for our sins, and crushing sin and death and all that's wrong in the world by rising again to establish his ultimate rule and reign. His kingdom has come, and his kingdom is coming. This passage is the first note of hope and redemption after the fall. It's like the first drop of dye in the redemptive bucket of human history. If you can picture what that looks like for me, like picture just a, a big, clear, bucket of water and you have a dye dropper, just like a red dye dropper. And when you put that one drop of dye in, you immediately see the evidence of the dye in the water, right? But it takes a long time before that dye permeates the water, right? Before it completely colors or transforms the liquid. And that's what I, I thought of when I thought about the nature of this story. It's like this is the first drop in this hu huge bucket of human history of God introducing his rescue plan. Some, some translations um, in this uh, passage will say that it's bruise instead of um, strike, that he'll bruise the heel. And I like that idea because a bruise is like an obvious and undeniable injury. I think we've all probably had bruises throughout our lives, but they fade over time and eventually the injured area returns to its natural state. So the Bible references Satan's most effective blow, Jesus' death, as a minor injury because Jesus doesn't stay dead. He has the power to overcome death. So do you see it now? Thousands of years before Jesus' coming, there's a picture of what this would look like. Just after the introduction of sin into the world, God provides a picture of Satan antagonizing the world, the little ankle biter, but never being able to deliver a finishing blow. And then thousands of years after this promise, Jesus comes into the story in the flesh, born as a baby, miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit to a virgin peasant girl. He grows to maturity and promises salvation to all who believe in him. He heals the sick and raises dead people to life. 
He overturns the social and spiritual and economic structure of the world by befriending social outcasts, exposing the hypocrisy of empty religion, and though entitled to all the riches of heaven and earth, he dies possessing nothing more than a cruel crown of thorns smashed into his head before being buried in a borrowed grave. But he delivers on God's promise. He crushes the head of his enemy by overcoming death. It's the ultimate triumph. Jesus wins. And because Jesus wins, all the stuff that got broken and messed up, all that stuff that Brooke talked about way back when, is made right and can be restored to right relationship with God, ourselves, and each other. So those three areas that Brooke talked about as having been broken find their restoration. They find their healing in Jesus. So my first point is that Jesus restores our relationship with God. Though Jesus was bruised for us, he gave us access to God the Father. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Isaiah chapter 53 says that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, by his being bruised, we are healed. And Romans chapter 5 says it well. You see, at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Jesus restores us to our right relationship with our Father. Brooke and I heard a couple of Norwegian pastors talking about what family looks like. And I loved how this, this older Norwegian uh, pastor said it. He said that God isn't looking for how much you can do or how much you have to give, but he's deeply concerned with who you hang out with. We often want to start with what we think we have to offer and what we can get, but God just says, join me, follow me, abide in me. I want to be with you. The second thing that finds its restoration um, because of Jesus is our relationship with ourselves. That's that identity piece. We're not defined by what we do, what we have, or what people say about us. We find our identity in being sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. We did nothing to earn our position in the family, so there's nothing that we can do to lose it. We're sons and daughters who love by the Father, always. Psalm 139.14 says, and when we know this, when we find our identity um, in Jesus, when we get right with Jesus and God and we get right with ourselves, we can say things like this. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. 
Galatians says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who, gave, who loved me and gave himself for me. We can stop looking in the mirror and wishing that we were something that we're not. We can stop wishing that we were smarter, taller, skinnier, funnier, whatever it is that you feel like you've missed out on. But instead, we can agree with God who looks at us and who says, you are very good. As Brooke said, you're my favorite. We are his prized possessions. And the last thing that we find our restoration in because of Jesus coming is our relationship with each other. Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 through 29 say, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let me say that again. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, if you belong to Christ, and you are Abraham's offspring, and you're heirs according to promise, that promise in Genesis 3 is true for us today. These labels that we used to wear can't contain us any longer. We need something larger. We need something more comprehensive. I'm not defined by how smart I am or how much money I make or how funny I am, how good a husband I am. None of those things can define me anymore if I find my identity in Christ because I'm so much more than that. The possibilities that exist for my life are so much more than that. That's the promise that we have. We are significant, but we're not self-important. Our significance is now tied to what we are a part of, and that's the body of Christ with all of its unique forms and functions and parts. <clears throat> One of the other things that our Norwegian pastor friend said that we've never met, but that we really like. Um, yeah, I love these guys. They have so many good things to say. Um, they said that people don't want to be one to anything, and nobody's out looking for salvation. But we're all out looking to make sense of our lives, and we're all looking for purpose. We're all looking to escape pain. And what we're ultimately looking for is belonging. And I just want to say this morning that if you're here, you belong to us. You're a part of who we are. As we journey with Jesus, we want to do it together. It's our great joy to journey with Jesus and all of you. As I thought about what that looks like for who we are, you know, I said earlier that we are a peculiar tribe. Look around, right? All different people. Um, different gifts and abilities and talents. Uh, we look different, we talk different, we act different. Um, but I thought of an example of this uh, just this morning I was getting ready, and so I'm gonna embarrass a couple of people that I didn't get permission from and ask them to come forward. And to make it less awkward, I'll ask John or whoever's closing us out with the worship team to come forward as well. But I'm gonna ask Grant and Diane to come forward. Now I said it would be a, a little bit embarrassed. Diane's not gonna be embarrassed by this, right? Yeah, come on up. Um, I thought of this example of when our identity gets corrected, right? When we begin to fully understand who we are in relationship with God and who we are in relationship to ourselves, 
and who we are in relationship to each other. I was reminded of something that happened this summer. Um, Grant and Diane were on the Dominican mission trip this summer. And as you can see, there's probably not a lot that a 20-something lady like Diane has in common with a strapping young 15-year-old buck like Grant. Um, but man, somehow on that trip, they formed a connection. And I can honestly tell you, when they came home, uh, Brooke and Grant and Christian were there with Diane and the other members of the team. I probably heard more stories about Diane from Grant than the work that happened there. And it became pretty obvious to me that Grant really loves Diane. And she really loves Grant. And so this summer they were filming some of the stories that had come out of that trip. And Diane, you may not know, has an interest in strange movies. Um, the, the kind that you're like, who actually goes to see that? Like Sharknado or like Sharknado 3? Uh, but in this case, what was playing was The Meg. And if you don't know what The Meg is, I'm sure it was a high quality film about a shark that's large enough to eat like island nations. Um, this like oversized shark that terrorizes the oceans. Megala, Megalotron, Megalodon, Megalashark, um, big shark. And so Diane wanted to see that movie, but she said that nobody ever wants to go to see those movies with her. Imagine that. It's hard to find other people that want to see those movies. Um, but in the midst of that conversation, Grant said, I'd go to that movie with you. And so they probably laughed about it. I don't know how serious it was taken, but maybe it was that same week. Diane circled back to that and called Brooke, and she said, do you think that, that Grant would go to that movie with me? And um, he said that he would. And it was just like, I didn't know about any of that until after it had happened. I came home that day and I learned that Grant and Diane had gone to a matinee together, the two of them, to see the Meg. And I thought, what could put two people like Diane and Grant together except that their identity is secure in Jesus Christ? They really don't have anything in common but there's another element to this. Not only are they secure in who they are because of what Jesus has done for them, they've been on mission together. And going on mission together changes how you see each other. And so I just thought, this is such a cool picture of the kingdom. The 15-year-old kid and a 59-year-old lady going to see movies together because they seriously just enjoy being together. And I think that's a picture of what being in right relationship looks like. So I appreciate you guys letting me expose you and call you out. Steve, you want to come up and, and close us out? So are you sitting there today thinking that I want to have a restored relationship with Jesus? And I know I've never dealt with my sin. Um, I want to accept God, God's plan A for my life. Today is the day. If you're feeling that nudge from the Holy Spirit, if you're feeling your stomach doing a little bit of uh, somersaults, it's probably the Lord. And don't push it aside. God's inviting you into his forever family today. It's the greatest thing you could ever experience. And we want to do this with you as you choose to be part of our family on mission. We need you, we want you, and we're inviting you 
to do this with us. We want more stories like Diane and Grant um, of hanging out together because we're a family on mission. But on the other hand, have you come to the place where you've already accepted God's plan A for your life, um, but you want to live more fully free? Just because you're a believer doesn't mean that you don't struggle with your identity and your relationships and these, these issues that we've talked about today. Do you feel like the enemy's been holding you in bondage? Do you want more of what God has for you? Do you wanna walk in freedom where I, your identity is fully found in God? This restoration of how you view, your, view yourself and how you view all your other relationships can come to a whole new level if you just give it to the Lord. You no longer, do you no longer want your identity to be like the shifting sand? Do you want your identity to not come from what people think of you? Is your identity coming from what you do and what you have and you feel like you constantly have to be proving yourself? I know what this is like and I'm here to tell you that you can walk in freedom. I think of the passage in Matthew where it talks about Jesus' baptism and it talks about in that place that Jesus came up onto the water and it's the place where we see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all together. Jesus comes up out of the water and the the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus and the Father says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And from that moment on, um, Jesus never had to work for the affirmation of the Father. He worked from the affirmation of the Father. Do you feel like you're constantly trying to work for the affirmation of everyone, of God, of all these places, I'm telling you that you can walk in a freedom where your security, your identity is so secure in who you are in the Lord that you no longer have to strive for anything other than resting in the fact that you are a loved son, that you are a loved daughter of the Most High God. If you find yourself in either of these scenarios, I would encourage you to not leave today without being prayed for. Allow the Father's love to wash over you and bring freedom to your heart. God wants you to walk in freedom and come fully alive in who he has created you to be.